Chapter 18 of Seeing Things at Night. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seeing Things at Night by Haywood Bruin. Romance and Reticence. Whenever a man remarks, I've had a mighty adventurous life, I have. We usually set him down as a former king of the Coney Island Carnival or a recently returned delegate from an Elks convention in Kansas City. It has been our somewhat bitter experience that the man who pictures himself as a great adventurer is almost invariably spurious. As a matter of fact, the rule holds good for great wits, great lovers, and great drinkers. But it applies with particular pertinence to romantic folks. A wise professor at Harvard once remarked that he didn't believe that the ancients realized that they were ancients. We have somewhat the same feeling about quaint people and romantic people and adventurous people. Of course, we must admit the existence in life and in literature of authentic but sophisticated romantic figures. Cyrano was one, and to a lesser extent, D'Artagnan. Porthos is on our side, but the best example we can remember is Huckleberry Finn. Tom Sawyer pictured himself as a romantic figure. Huck didn't. When Huck went a-wandering, he thought it was because of the store clothes the widow had given him were uncomfortable. It was actually another itch, but he did not know its name. This, to our mind, is the essence of true adventure. When a man comes to recognize romance, he is in a position to bargain and parley. He is not the true adventurer. Things no longer just happen to him. He has to go out and seek them. He has lost his amateur standing. Huck, who didn't know what it was all about, had much more exciting adventures than Tom, and he was a more fascinating figure in the happening. Jim would also come into our category of true adventurers, and, to skip back a bit, Tom Jones is almost type-perfect. Just so, Sancho Panza seems to us more fundamentally romantic than Don Quixote, and we have always been more interested in what happened to Dr. Watson than in the adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock foresaw things, and that is fatal to romance. The prodigal son belongs in our list, and Andrew Jackson and Lot's wife and Eddie Rickenbacker, and Lord Jim, and Ajax, and Little Red Riding Hood, and Thomas Edison, and the father of the Cats and Jammer kids, and most of Bluebeard's wives, and all the people who refuse to go into the Ark. While we are willing to admit that there are other types who are successfully romantic in spite of self-consciousness, they are the exceptions. We are hardly willing to accept them in a group. This brings us to Mrs. Fisk's new play, Miss Nellie of New Orleans, at which we have been aiming throughout the article. There are nine characters in the play, and the author pictures each of them as being distinctly aware that he is an adventurous character in a quaint garden in a romantic city in a mad story. It is true that these people do some romantic and adventurous things, but never without first predicting that they are going to be romantic, and then explaining, after it is all over, that they have been romantic. 
From our point of view, there is too much challenge in this. Whenever a man or woman in a play or in life promises that he is about to do something quaint, we have an irresistible desire to lay him six to five that it won't be any such thing. Then, if the decision is left to us, we always decide against him. The method of the preliminary puff and the subsequent official confirmation is decidedly a mistake in the case of the character portrayed by Mrs. Fisk in Miss Nelly of New Orleans. Mrs. Fisk showed herself quite capable of carrying the role of a spirited, romantic, and adventurous belle, and it was unnecessary to have her triumph so carefully prepared in advance by the predictions of her servants as to what she would do when she got her Jim Crow up. We might have been content to accept some of the other characters as sure enough romantic figures if they had not been so confoundedly confident that they were. They fairly challenged us into disbelief. The author, to our mind, was wrong from the beginning in describing his comedy on the program as a comedy of moonshine, madness, and make-believe. Moonshine and madness are both elusive stage qualities. An author is fortunate indeed if he can achieve them. He is foolish to take the risk of predicting them. If he succeeds in presenting authentic moonshine and madness, he will not need to inform the audience of the fact by means of the program, and still less through his characters. Miss Nelly of New Orleans left us much more convinced of the make-believe. A play which affected us in somewhat similar fashion was The Gypsy Trail, produced here a season or so ago. In this play, the author presented a character who seemed to be a truly romantic figure for at least half the play. Then he was suddenly trapped into a confession that he was romantic. Someone asked him about it, and most unfortunately, he set out to prove that he was an adventurer in a long speech beginning, I have fried eggs on the top of the Andes, or in some such manner, and from that moment we grew away from him. We knew him as no true adventurer, but as a man who would eventually write a book, or at best, a series of articles for a Sunday magazine. The real tragedy of romance is that any man who appreciates his own loses it. In this workaday world, we can live only by taking in the other fellow's adventures. End of chapter 18. Recording by Richard Kilmer, Rio Medina, Texas.